Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, and then we'll read the responses, the answers to tonight's catechism question and answer. Lord's Day 44, that's on page 56 in the back of the blue Psalter hymnal. Exodus 20, let's begin in verse 1, and we'll read all of God's law as we conclude the section of the Catechism which considers the Ten Commandments. This is God's word given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. On the seventh day, He rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. As far as the reading of God's holy word, grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Lord's Day 44. On page 56, three questions for us to consider as we go seeking God's wisdom in the Tenth Commandments. Starting in question 113, let's read the answers together with one voice. What is God's will for us in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart. Rather, with all my heart, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. But can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some 
of God's commandments. No one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Tonight we end our consideration in the Catechism of the Ten Commandments. It's a great blessing to come to God's Word and to be reminded again and again that not only does our God speak to us, but He cares about what we do. He's speaking to us through the administration of His holy law, showing us that what we do actually matters to Him. That in many ways is a humbling thing. This law functions in different ways for us, doesn't it? And we see the many ways in which it functions. It constantly reminds us of our sinfulness, the myriad ways in which we fall short again and again. But it also guides us in the way of our Christian obedience. The writers of the New Testament bring up repeatedly God's holy law, the commandments. Do not steal, do not murder, and the rest. They guide our way in honoring God. There's an abiding relevance, a validity to the law of God. Jesus says, of course, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In a surprising way, this 10th commandment is really a lot like the first and the second. It seems to bring us around full circle. And of course, the catechism highlights that in a way, it sort of illumines all 10 of the commandments all at once. Coveting is a sin which highlights who and what we are as human beings. We are creatures who love and worship objects. We love and we worship things. We give our allegiance to things that steal our affection. The Tenth Commandment highlights the way that happens with all of the stuff that is in our lives. All of the stuff that this world throws us. In Pilgrim's Progress, the second installment of the story, Christian's wife, Christiana, occupies a, a prominent role in the second part. And she is, is worried, distraught, because she sees a man who is consumed with raking up straws and sticks on the floor. And in doing so, he's missing the fact that there is someone who is above him offering him a heavenly crown of beautiful jewels. But he has taken... His attention is completely given to these straws and sticks, dust on the floor, worthless. Christiana laments this reality because, uh, and she begs that God would deliver her from this kind of mindset. She prays, God, deliver me from the mentality of the muckrake. So often with us, it's something similar, isn't it? 
the things that so quickly grab our attention on this earth, things that we covet and we lust after. They are nothing but straws and sticks on a dusty floor when we compare them with the heavenly riches that we have in Jesus Christ. We are sin-sick. We are often consumed with the love of things. We live in a time and an age where abundance is experienced by more people than anyone else relatively in the history of the world. One pastor described it as a case of affluenza, right? So many of us have this abundance that never could have been dreamed about in previous generations. People from 100 years ago would have looked at what the average person has today and would have been filled with complete shock and awe. It's changed the way that life works. It's a bit of a game changer. This morning's account, one of the things that doesn't quite hit us as hard anymore with the feeding of the 5,000 is the abundance that Jesus provides for the people. When Jesus walked this earth, the norm was scarcity. Most people had to live being very careful about what they spent and making sure that they'd be able to attain enough food to feed everyone in the home. Scarcity was a huge problem, and it's a much smaller problem now. The problem that we are realizing, particularly in our country that we have, is that so many people have things in abundance, and yet it has not done anything to solve the sin of coveting. We have more, but now that we have more, we want more. And this brings us back to the fact that we are worshipers, that we, we tend to love and to worship things. And it shows us the handiwork of our Creator, who created us to be worshipers. But when it gets twisted around by our sinfulness, too often we are worshiping something other than God. And when we worship things other than God, what we find in them is not sufficiency, not joy, not happiness. We find insufficiency. Because at the very root of our existence is that God created us to worship and to glorify Him. He created us to find our joy and our fulfillment in Him. Before the fall, the, the purpose of, of man's existence was to be in relationship with God. And now that that is severed, now that that has gone away, there is an emptiness and a longing of the soul that so many people and so many people feel, and too often they try to fill it with worshiping something other than God. And coveting is a crying out of that emptiness, isn't it? Thinking that we can be fulfilled with something that is earthly, whether it be an object, a thing, a person, a promotion, a position. All of these things we can covet. There are three things that I'd like to consider tonight. Summarize this commandment and the whole way that we are to approach the law of God. Three things. First, we are to be grateful with what God has given to us. We are to be grateful with what God has given to us. We are to grow in love towards our neighbor. And we are to ground our contentment in the righteousness of Christ. Grateful with what God has given to us. Grow in love towards neighbor. And ground our contentment in the righteousness of Christ. First then, we must be content with what God has given to us. When we hear the 10th commandment, it's cast in ancient terms. It's, 
things that really don't directly affect us anymore. Most of us don't have oxen or donkeys, do we? We have cars. Most of us, all of us, thankfully don't have slaves, but we have companies and businesses and 401ks and vacation homes. Worldly possessions are the universal language. We, we understand it. And so even though uh, these are categories and possessions that really only make sense to centuries past, the commandment still is understood by us. We read, do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's cast also in terms consistent with the patriarchy of the day. In that time of history, the men were the, the ones who owned things. They were the ones who owned property. Wealth and riches were deeply attached to not only money, but land and crops and livestock and servants. And yes, even children. It's not to say that children had a monetary value, but a man with a lot of possessions and a big family, he was a rich man indeed. But all of the possessions really were centered upon the man, the patriarch, the head of the home, the head of the clan. But today we think of possessions in a much more egalitarian way, don't we? Even under the same roof, we have all of these different possessions that sort of belong to different people in the family. This is the husband's, the, the husband's room, the man cave. Here's something that belongs to the wife. Here's something that is the oldest daughter's. And you better not touch that which belongs to the oldest daughter. We think about possessions in an egalitarian way. And we still see that this has done nothing to decrease the way that we covet. We still covet things, even though ownership is really much more of a universal thing. Advertising, commercialization, all of these things that bombard us each and every day, they appeal to the worst sides of us, don't they? Commercials that really shamelessly appeal to the sinful tendencies within us. Commercials will tell us to lean into characteristics that are condemned in the Bible, winking at certain kinds of sin or indulgence. The advertising industry in that way is sort of Calvinistic, aren't they? They know something that John Calvin knew. John Calvin called us, what, factories of idols, as human beings, sinful in nature, we are so good at, at creating, producing all new kinds of idols. That's why John Calvin was insistent that we need to stick to letting our lives and our worship be shaped by God's word alone. Because if, if we go off onto our own, we're going to create more and more idols. Ultimately, this is so similar to coveting. And the Bible connects these dots for us explicitly. Coveting is idolatry. It is in this way that the Tenth Commandment brings us full circle back to the beginning of the law. The First and the Second Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Do not make for yourself idols of wood or stone. The New Testament speaks of this connection between idolatry and coveting in a couple different places. Ephesians 5 verse 5 says this. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or, or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3 verse 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why is covetousness idolatry? A couple of reasons. First, coveting is a way of saying that we are not content with what God has given to us. We see what other people have. We see something in the store. We see something on TV or on the computer screen. And we want it. We want their house. We want their car, their job, their promotion, their retirement accounts, their spouse, their obedient kids. We see these things and we feel dissatisfied, discontent with what we have. If we pause, if we take a step back and we think about all these things, what is actually going on when we covet in such a way? What is actually going on when we feel such discontentment with what God has given to us? What we are really doing is we are attacking the sovereignty of God and the fact that it is His right to give to His people and to give to all people on earth whatever He determines. It's a fundamental attack upon the goodness of God also, isn't it? God is good, right? Yes, God is good. Is God sovereign and in control? Yes, God is sovereign and in control. Are you happy with what you have? No. So if you're not happy with what you have, but you know that the Bible affirms that God is good and that God is sovereign and in control, and you're discontent, who are you actually accusing? Who are you actually blaming? You're blaming God. This is what coveting is. Being discontent with what has come from God's hand. Being discontent with what this good God has given to you. So the first reason that coveting is idolatry is because it's a form of questioning God's goodness, an attack upon God's goodness and sovereignty. And in our discontentment, we're saying that we know better than God what is good for us. We know what we should have right now. If we were just in control of providence for the next couple of days, we could set all, thing, all things right because we know better than God what is good for us. The second reason why coveting is idolatry is because when we covet an object, we are acting in a way that shows that having that object is more important than obeying God. It's more important than living in obedience to all of His commands. When we covet, we say that we would rather have that thing that we want than be a faithful disciple of Jesus. Thus, that thing becomes an idol, whatever it may be. When that becomes more important to us than being an obedient follower, that thing becomes an idol. When we stop truly coming to God in worship, when we stop abiding in Him, to use the language of Jesus in the Gospel of John, this is what we will do. We will begin to produce and to worship idols. When we are focused on earthly things, when we have the mentality of the muckrake consumed with the dust and the dirt that we sweep up on the floor, we miss the heavenly crown that is offered from on high. We show how capable we are of taking the purpose for which God has made us and twisting it into something else entirely. Because of all these things, we are to be content with what God has given to us. Later in Colossians 3, Paul will tell us to put away all of the things which our earthly selves pull us towards. Why are we to put idolatry and covetousness away? 
said at the beginning of that passage. We are to put them away because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. In the other passage that we mentioned earlier, Ephesians 5, Paul says that rather than covetousness, there ought to be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Notice that Paul does not say in Ephesians 5 that those who are happy with their current situation are to be filled with thanksgiving. It's a universal command to all of God's people. It says, rather than all of these earthly things, be filled with thanksgiving. Rather than all of these sins, which we so easily fall into, be filled with thanksgiving. This is the mindset that covetousness just will not allow a thankful heart, a heart that is filled with thanksgiving. To flee idolatry, to flee covetousness, is to rest in the fact that at each moment God is holding you in exactly the right place. It's an ability to recognize our human frailty, our our human finitude, isn't it? We don't understand all the things that God is doing. To be human is to say that I just don't get all the things that God is doing in the world, in my life, with all of my circumstances, with the people around me. I can't understand all of that. And I need Him. I need Him and His promises and His faithfulness to me. Because even when it doesn't seem like faithfulness, I hold on to the fact that He is faithful. That's an extremely difficult truth not only to comprehend, but to, to embrace and to live out in our lives. But it's true, at each moment, our Heavenly Father is good and He is working out the best result of His glory and our good in our lives. Covetousness says the exact opposite thing. It says, the way your life is, is wrong. The way that your life is, can and should and must be improved. We can feel like providence is completely stacked against us. One of the the best psalms that encapsulates that mentality and then sort of a a shift and then ultimately a a really beautiful synthesis of all those things ending in a worship of the true God. Psalm 73, there's this exact situation going on. The psalmist feels that the whole world must be against him. The wicked are prospering. All those who are evil getting all that they want. He's filled with misery. And he's looking into the fabric of reality itself and he's saying, I don't think I can trust that this world is in in the control of a good God. He is tempted to say that this God is unjust. He is tempted to think that it would be better for him to die than to live. But then there is the grand shift in Psalm 73. And when does that shift take place? It takes place in this verse, he says, But then I entered the sanctuary of God, and I perceived their end. This is what worshiping the true God does. It jolts us into otherworldly realities. It allows us to see uh, more clearly, not completely clearly, but it allows us to see more clearly the horizon on which our good God is working. It shows us what Colossians 3 tells us is actually true. That there is a reality that is true of you, that is hidden in the very life of God. That where Christ is, seated at God's right hand, there, there your treasure has been laid up. There your life is hidden. There your inheritance has been guaranteed. Frederick Buechner, 
20th century theologian, a thinker, sort of a, a devotional type of writer in many ways, talked about this, this longing of the heart. He said this, like Adam, we have all lost paradise and yet we carry paradise around inside of us in the form of a longing for, almost a memory of, a blessedness that is no more or the dream of a blessedness that may someday be again. This is why it becomes so easy to covet and to to fall into idolatry because in our sinful flesh, we will always feel unfulfilled. We will always feel empty. But the answer is not found in the things that we idolize, the things that we so easily turn to when we feel doubt. It is found only in being restored to our true purpose of glorifying God in Christ. Then I entered the sanctuary of God And that is when I perceived their end. This life is about fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ and letting that form your affections. And your affections that can so easily shift to the things of this world need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Jesus Christ. What happens in his word by the power of his spirit. This does not mean, of course, that we always need to be happy. But rather it is a recognition that no matter how tough life can get, That nothing can separate you from the love of Christ and nothing will snatch you from his hand. Those are the beautiful promises to which we must cling. This command to flee flee covetousness is also uh, not saying that it is wrong to desire things on this earth. It's not a complete abandonment of this world. One of the the, the great things about our Reformed tradition is that it sees the sovereignty of God, the lordship of God in all of life. And that it sees or recognizes common grace and goodness all around us. But the problem with our sinful nature is that so often we can get our priorities mixed up. And it's so important to have first things rightly ordered. This is also not to say that poverty is in itself a virtue. Those who are poor can fall prey to the love of money just as easily. Just because we have very little does not mean that we do not love or worship money or idols. The kind of mentality that we need to cultivate by the power of the Spirit in our hearts is what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 4. He said this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We are to be grateful for what God has given to us. We are to grow in love towards our neighbor. The Tenth Commandment is cast in a way that makes everything that we covet something which belongs to our neighbor. We are not to covet his wife, his ox, his field. In today's world, we'd be remiss if we didn't recognize that because of the way that our world is, we can easily covet something that doesn't belong to anyone. We can easily walk through a store, probably Target, and we can have our sinful heart pulled towards all kinds of objects that are just waiting to be purchased. This is true if you bring a little child with you into the store, right? It's sometimes difficult to deal with little children because it seems like every other aisle, there's something that they really want and and they just cry out for it. And while it's tough sometimes to deal with that, I appreciate their honesty. 
And, and in appreciating their honesty, it, it highlights something in my own heart because even though I'm able to sort of control my emotions and my outbursts a little bit better than my two-year-old daughter, Sophia, not much, but a little bit, even though I'm, I'm, a, I'm able to control myself a little bit more, I still feel the same sinful, sinful tendencies. But more important than that part of covetousness is the fact that it affects our neighbor. And that's really the way that the, the commandment is worded. We are not to covet the things which belong to our neighbor. The commandment to not covet what those around us have is, in a way, a call to love our neighbor, to put their interests ahead of our own. The world of looking out for number one is foreign to the scriptures, isn't it? We are called to put others' concerns, others' needs in front of our own. The Westminster Shorter Catechism makes this point really well, and so I hope you'll uh, allow me to indulge for a minute as we go and trust our Presbyterian friends uh, to make this point for us. Questions 80 and 81 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism say this. What is required in the Tenth Commandment? The answer, the Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable, charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. What is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbids, forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. When we covet something that belongs to our neighbor, what we are saying is that we actually, that we would rather that we have that instead of them. It would make us happier if that thing that our neighbor has were stripped away from him and given to me. It becomes obvious to us that if God's people are in any way to be at peace with one another, we cannot be covetous. Covetous can ravage our relationships through one another, fulfilled with envy, wishing that we had something that our neighbor had. Wishing that God hadn't blessed them with that thing or that job or that family situation. What we're doing is we're sinning against our neighbor. We are to grow then in love for our neighbor. And then finally we are to ground our confidence in the righteousness of Christ. As we began our consideration of this commandment this evening, we read the catechism questions and answers. Perhaps you realize that something was a little bit different than the other nine commandments in the questions and answers. Usually, it sort of explicitly goes into the breaking of the commandments, how you can keep it, how you can honor God in the keeping of the commandment, which is what the Westminster Catechism does. But our catechism goes in a little bit of a different direction. It doesn't say that. Question and answer 113 go like this. What is God's will for us in the Tenth Commandment? And the answer, that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart. Why is that pattern broken for this commandment? Why doesn't it tell us what God forbids and what he requires like they do in all of the other nine? The answer is found in realizing that the tenth commandment is a little bit different in nature than the other nine. It's a commandment that forbids a certain kind of of thinking. It's a commandment that speaks of a sin that is not easily recognizable in the people around us. It's much harder to control than outward action. 
all the other nine commandments may, in a sense, be easier to be kept outwardly. A self-righteous person may think that they have kept all of the other nine commandments. Now, Jesus, of course, deepens the law, and he shows us the, the, the full meaning of the other nine commandments. But there may be people who read the Ten Commandments, and they say, outwardly, I, I've kept all of those things. In this way, the Tenth Commandment is a sword against self-righteousness. A man who was very sensitive to self-righteousness and calling it out was Martin Luther. And he talked about the Tenth Commandment. And he said this, This Tenth Commandment, therefore, is given not for rogues in the eyes of the world. In other words, not for the kinds of people that we say, Oh, there's a sinner, there's a sinner. That This commandment was not given for them, he says. He says, this commandment was given for the most pious who wish to be praised and be called honest and upright people since they have not offended against the former commandments, or so they would think, as Luther would say. See, that is what the Tenth Commandment teaches us, that the law of God looks deep into the inward realities of the human heart. We have tried throughout these Ten Commandments to take a Christ-centered view. How does Christ deepen the commandment? How does he transform its meaning as he gives it back to us in his righteousness and his obedience which he fulfilled on our behalf? And in this commandment, what we are compelled to do is to grow in humility more and more. It's one of the things that this commandment does for us and why the Heidelberg Catechism highlights that so wonderfully for us. That we are to grow in humility more and more. And as answer 115 says, we we must each day look more eagerly to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and to his righteousness. This is one of those, this commandment specifically shows us that we cannot trust in our own self-righteousness. And after we ground our confidence in Jesus Christ and in him alone, We must always know that we are called to strive more and more to be like our Savior. It doesn't mean that there is no battle to fight. It doesn't mean that what we do does not matter to God. It's nothing like that at all. What we are to know is that it is all of grace, but we still must battle each day striving to be like our Savior and to honor our God in the things that we do. For what contemplating this law teaches us is that what we do matters to God. Exactly what we said at the beginning this evening. He has told us what is right. He has written his law on our hearts. And he has hidden us in the righteous life of his son. He has written our name in the book of life because of what he has done for us. Thus, may we live for him all of our days. May we accept our lot with thanksgiving. May we love our neighbor, and may we always trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for yet another day worshiping in your house. We pray that you would impress your word and its truths upon our hearts. Refresh us then this evening. Send us back out into the world to be your people, salt and light, faithful disciples and followers of you. In Christ's name, amen.